1: I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Over the years, we've had a few people on to talk about what is termed mystical Christianity. Now, that's kind of a loaded term that means different things to different folks. I imagine that many, if not most, tend to think of a more Gnostic view of the Gospels when they hear us talk about mystical Christianity. There are some who want no part of anything called mystical, as they tend to relate the word to things like palmistry, tarot, or magic. But Christians have an ancient and venerable tradition in mysticism. But most of that has been expressed in the Catholic or Orthodox denominations. And even then, many in the church prefer to keep the mystics locked up in the attic like a crazy uncle. In Protestant circles, it's rare that one hears talk about this subject. In evangelical Protestant circles, even rarer. This is why the book that we're discussing today may be said to be groundbreaking. In The God of Intimacy and Action, Tony Campolo and Mary Albert Darling take great pains to introduce ancient spiritual practices to an evangelical audience in a decidedly Protestant Christian way, even though much of what is in the book is drawn from Catholic saints and practitioners. So our guest today is co-author Mary Albert Darling. She's an associate professor of communications at Spring Arbor University right here in Michigan and teaches at the undergraduate and graduate levels. She's a graduate of Spring Arbor with a double major in philosophy and religion and in psychology. She received her Master of Arts degree in Communication Arts and Sciences from Western Michigan University. In November of 2002, she completed a two-year program in spiritual direction offered by the Manresa Jesuit House in Birmingham. She designed and teaches a class on spiritual direction at Spring Arbor and uh, in addition to teaching for which she received the Spring Arbor Teaching Excellence Award. Mary regularly does spiritual direction primarily with university students. She also talks on such topics as the connections among faith, learning, and living in interpersonal and public communications. Mary especially loves talking about spiritual transformation and the spiritual disciplines. So we welcome to WGVU's Common Threads, Mary Albert-Darling. Mary, welcome.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be with you.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm curious. Uh, Let's start off by saying, how did this book come to be? That is to say, at some point, you and Tony Campolo got together. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your relationship with him and, and how that may have led into the book.
2: Okay, well, I used to do the coordinate the chapel program at Spring Arbor University uh, several years ago, and uh, Tony was just the the most sought after speaker in on college campuses during that time. And so I got the opportunity to host him three or four times over the period of about nine years. And so we got to be friends. We really we hit it off. We clicked. I remember when I first heard Tony, I really didn't know much about who he was, but as uh, he sat there and talked about Jesus and about the poor and oppressed i just remember my spirit just going this is truth this is this is truth the way that he is putting this together i've quite never quite heard it that way and how come i didn't read those verses in the bible even though they were there and i'd read the whole bible uh, so we got to be friends uh, several years ago and then i did a spiritual direction program at, uh, about seven years ago and had reconnected with tony because our current uh, chapel director our chaplain I invited him back to speak, so we got we got reconnected. I started telling him about my spiritual direction program, and that's the book evolved out of what I was learning and what I knew he was all about
1: and um, tell us a little bit about how you define mystical christianity
2: yeah that that I think that's a really important question because that does raise all kinds of red flags. For people, for us, we're trying to reclaim the word because we believe that if you are a Christian, you are a mystic, but just like the word Christian or feminism or a lot of words, you know, it has a whole lot of different connotations uh, depending on who's defining it. So we want to reclaim that word, and we see mystical Christianity simply uh, about having an intimate relationship with Jesus, a real relationship where we recognize that the Spirit of God, that Christ is in us, and that that makes a difference in our lives and in how we treat and love other people.
1: You have uh, in the beginning of the book, you have a list of types of mystical experiences. Let's let's go through those. Uh, okay. Start out with uh, new insights. What what kind of experience is that?
2: A, a new insight would be something you know. It's it's something that you've you've. You've heard maybe something that you've read, and all of a sudden you know you read it again and you you see it in a whole different way than you've ever seen it before and and we talk about that being mystical. Uh, we talk about that uh, and and we're talking about Christian mysticism. We're talking about Christ in us, we're talking about paying attention to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit speaking to us. So these different types of mystical uh, experiences, we want to say, okay, that is, and we believe that 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 is the Holy Spirit in you, like if you're reading the Bible and you come up with a different way of of seeing something now. What I do need to say there, though, is that we also believe that you need to test the spirits and you need to do this in the context of a a Christian community. So just because you think, hey, this is a new thought, you know, people have based whole systems of thought on things that are wrong, and, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about testing the spirits and doing that in the context of Christian community.
1: And the I-thou relationship, which, uh, of course, many of us associate with uh, Martin Buber, and you certainly give him credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, let's define the I-thou relationship and then talk about it as it is expressed in the book.
2: Okay. Well, how, how I see the I-thou relationship is that um, oftentimes we, we look at people as I-it— and that is that we treat people as objects. Sometimes even if we don't realize we're doing that, we might not admit that we're doing that, but we, you know, like the, the cashier, that's the example I like to use. A cashier at the store, I'm I'm impatient, I'm trying to get out of the store, and they're being slow, and am I looking at that person as a real person or just as someone as an end, as an end to my, a means to my end? Uh, so if it, I'm looking at that person just to fulfill my needs, then that would be an it, an objectifying of the relationship. But if I... I look at the relationship as an I-thou. That means I connect with someone at a different level, that, that, that I, I look at that person as someone made in the image of God. That person is worthy. I treat them, I treat them with respect and with love and with compassion and not as an object. And that, that changes the way that we see people. When you look at the cashier as, as a person made in the image and likeness of God, that changes the way that we relate to people.
1: Now, I would imagine that so far, just the two that we've talked about—new uh, insights and uh, an encouraging of an I-Thou relationship—most people would say eh, it doesn't sound too mystical. That sounds like what uh, we all should be doing anyway. Now, when we come to the the third uh, um, new, uh, or, or I should say, the third experience, it's heightened awareness. Now that's something that I can imagine somebody going, "Uh-oh, here we go. Now we're now we're." Going towards the deep end. What what is heightened awareness?
2: Yeah, I I like Tony's term hyper awareness. You know, he talks about hyper awareness of of the presence of God in, in the everyday experiences experiences of life. And if uh, if you you know people have heard of of Brother Lawrence, he talks about practicing the presence of God, so it's not that, we're not talking about the pantheism, we're seeing gods and everything, but we're, we're talking about, about being, being thankful and having this heightened awareness that, of, well, what, you know, he says, the glorious presence of God in the everyday experiences of life, enjoying the ordinary things in a more extraordinary uh, manner, and, and I, like, I like the Our Town example that we use in the book with the main character of Emily, you know where she says, you know, why did I, why did I not see this? You know, she she has died and she gets to come back for one day, and everything is glorious to her. The, you know, for me, it's like the morning coffee <laughs> becomes almost a sacred moment. Smelling that coffee and just being so grateful for smell, and it, it's a lot about gratefulness. I have a, a friend, colleague who believes that cultivating a spirit of thankfulness and gratefulness is the most important spiritual discipline that we can that we can practice.
1: So to be able to go through what many consider mundane experiences, but but with a a more, shall we say, a powerful sense, a a more grounded sense, Uh, so instead of just taking a drink of water, maybe taking that drink of water uh, as you would if you hadn't had a drink all day or a couple of days. Yes, you
2: know, I used to get really uh, sick with, with my, I have two boys, and I got sick with my pregnancies, and... And uh, a glass of water took on a whole new meaning because I was dehydrated. I couldn't even drink water without getting sick. And drinking that water, that, that sip of water, I can still remember how wonderful that was, how grateful I was for that water. And we lose that gratefulness when we get used to something. And so this is about never getting used to the ordinary. That's what the heightened awareness is about.
1: And then, uh, you have listed here conversion experiences as as another manifestation of of um, mystical Christianity um I would assume just about every uh, evangelical Christian would claim to have had a, a conversion experience. Is that not right. correct
2: right right so that yes, that is one I think that people would go, okay if you're calling that mystical i can I can agree with that and yes that that is one that would be you know more common, although again wonderful. <laughs>
1: Uh, for for people, um, unless what about the person who uh, some he, he is convinced? Let's say, boy, if I don't do this, uh, something bad is going to happen to me after I die. Okay, I'll do it. So he he goes through the the rote of of conversion, but doesn't really feel anything.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's a good point because there are people who feel that conversion experience in a dramatic way. We give a couple different examples of that in the book, but there are are many people who walk away saying, "Okay, I didn't feel anything." And really, that's where some of these other uh, ways of cultivating mystical experiences come in. Because I would say, okay, it's not—I don't believe that it didn't take, if I can put it that way. But that God speaks to us in different ways. It also depends a lot about on our our personalities. how the spirit chooses to speak to us and so that's when i would say all right now what happened to you let's let's talk about that and let's try to cultivate this relationship with god in the way that brother lawrence did you know um with with seeing god and everything even his his famous line is even in the pots and pans you know lord of all pots and pans and things make me a saint by getting meals and washing up the plates." so helping people to cultivate you know through these other ways the everyday experiences um... And if they don't feel like they've had that, you know, sudden wonderful conversion experience, that doesn't mean they haven't been converted.
1: You know, one thing that I actually looked for in the book, and maybe I missed it, maybe you addressed it and, and I just glossed over it. But Uh-oh. I, I but Yeah, but could be.
2: <laughs> what did we miss? That's my fear, you know, what did I miss?
1: <laughs> but uh, you don't mention any of the, of the experiences that one typically relates to the charismatic or Pentecostal, uh, form of of worship and prayer that is speaking mm-hmm. in tongues, uh, or or uh, perhaps healing or, or something like that. Did you specifically stay away from that? Do you consider that part of mystical Christianity?
2: Yes, we consider that. Uh, yes, yes, we consider that part of mystical Christianity. But we also stayed away from it so that people would realize that we are not talking about only becoming charismatic or that you have to become part of the charismatic tradition uh, to to do what we're talking about. Because when you talk about the spirit world, that is often where people go, oh, that's charismatic, that's Pentecostal. And so uh, by no means disparaging that, but, but telling people, wait a minute, this is not only for Pentecostals, this is not only for charismatics, and you know, maybe it would have been better if we had... Maybe we in another edition. Hopefully, we could uh, we could state that. But yeah, that that was an intentional move at, at this point to to not equate it with that, so people would say we're talking about this for every Christian, not for a certain you know denomination.
1: But aren't there a number of Christians who are evangelical who are not Pentecostal who might uh, uh, might close the book right then and there because they are so opposed to. Those kinds of practices, such as such as tongues,
2: yes, yes, you know, I think there are so many red flags with that, and we were already raising so many red flags with the word mystical, right that you know that we decided we decided to to stay away from that, but yeah, I would think um that in another edition, it might be good to just explain why why we did that, but that was an intentional move,
1: sure, sure, but mm-hmm. then if you do that, if you do all of a sudden include. The charismatic experiences you do run the risk of people and, and obviously you know this saying saying but you yourself may ask are, are you a charismatic are you a, a belong to a pentecostal tradition
2: no I don't I'm free Methodist and, um, and i and I kind of think of myself as a theological mutt because I've gone to a lot of different uh, churches including a charismatic church for a little while when I was when I was a, a teenager um, but no free Methodist and, and you know a role model a big role model for me and all of this in this book has been John Wesley uh, because a lot of people don't realize that he was very attracted to the mystic, uh, to mystics, to saints, um, but also very cautious of the saints and mystics. And, and the thing that's so attractive uh, uh, about him too is that you know, he's so, he was uh, such a firm believer that that relationship with God had to result in evangelism and justice. And his life showed that you know, in, in his preaching and his winning so many people to Christ and then in all the social reform he was involved in.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and joining me today is Mary Albert Darling. She's the co-author of God of Intimacy and Action, Reconnecting Ancient Spiritual Practices, Evangelism, and Justice. Uh, Let's go to the the final um, segment on the the various experiences. And uh, that would be what that would be not i thou the, we covered that that's breakthrough the experiences breakthrough? yes the break, mm-hmm. and what are those
2: breakthrough experiences you'll read a lot about these with saints and mystics their encounters that that they have with god that that um are well what what we would term as as miraculous it is it's it's moses you know with the burning bush uh, it's the apostle paul when in his conversion experience um uh, and and we we see these you know we read about these in the Bible we read about these with Saints and we can even easily accept them there but I think we have a little harder time you know especially even though we're in a postmodern world we're, we're very modern with our with our reason and um, and so when people say that they have these breakthrough experiences yes they need to be tested but I don't think we just simply discount them because they're not reasonable or rational. They're what we call transrational. And I, I do talk about, about one that, that I believe that my mom had, uh, and that is when my dad suddenly died and on the golf course and she was called to the emergency room. Uh, she, she watched the paramedics continue to work on him, although we found out later that he was, he was gone. When she walked into that emergency room, she could not look at my dad without seeing a visible ball of light. She told me later, there was a ball of light, and she could not see my dad without looking through that light. And I firmly believe that was a breakthrough mystical experience, and that was the light of Christ. Now, you... And so that, that is an example.
1: You and Tony talk about super saints. Now, am I correct? In the evangelical Protestant tradition, anybody who is quote-unquote saved is a saint. Is, is that right? Right, right. People. The
2: priesthood of all believers. The saints. Yes, we are all saints. With super saints, we're talking about people, you know, like Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and and Augustine and all of those kinds of people that um, that we have, you know, that we have lifted up in our tradition, Protestants and Catholics. And so that's the big S.
1: <laughs> okay, and and in this uh, section on breakthrough experiences. You seem to give a little bit more credence, or you seem to elevate those people, those super saints, who uh, uh, were in the Bible, as opposed to somebody, say, even immediately after uh, the Bible was written. Do do you think that's kind of an arbitrary uh, timeline? What's the difference between a mystical experience that happened to be recorded in one of the biblical books and something that happened, you know, maybe 30 years later?
2: Mm hmm yeah i i really i'm just saying that there was a lot more maybe of testing of the experience you know people people did a lot more of saying okay do we think this was 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 real you know with how the bible came to be and so yeah i don't think i intentionally meant to say these these are the real deal or these are more important but some people are skeptical when it Con- it, when it goes beyond the Bible, and the point that um, that I was trying to make are that there, were, there are a lot of people beyond Bible days who have had these breakthrough mystical experiences, and so i don 't see it as a timeline where where the ones in the Bible were more important. I think that you know that the spirit of God is here, the Spirit of God uh, wants to wants to speak to us and, and totally transform our lives for his for God's glory. And yet, and yet sometimes we say, "Well, you know what? That was just for Bible times." And I think that's just very dangerous.
1: It's interesting you spend a significant amount of time in the book, and I can understand this because you're you're talking to an audience that probably 90% of them or more never had any kind of experience with with this subject and so you're very careful to always push your credentials that you are a Bible-believing, mm-hmm. evangelical, mm-hmm. Protestant, Christian, and yet uh, so many of your sources are Roman Catholic saints. Are uh, mm-hmm. you concerned about that? Have you have you gotten any feedback on that that uh, has oh, yeah. caused you concern? <laughs> Tell us about this, this interesting yeah, journey.
2: We, we knew. You know, Tony and I did argue about whether even to use the word mystical, that part of it but then we thought no we want to reclaim that because we want to make the point strongly that that christians are mystics there there are lots of different kinds of mystics but a, if you are a christian we we're talking about mystical in the sense of the intimacy with god and we wanted to make that point that it is it is not relegated to other people that we have the spirit of god in us and that's mystical but the the part about the catholic saints i could not have written as a even as a protestant i couldn't have written this book without it because it was the catholic the the lives of the catholic saints that was so inspiring to me and that is what i i thought i want that i want that you know i am not saying that there aren't um protestants well, John Wesley's one of them, and I'll talk about him in a second as related to this, but, you know, there are a lot of Protestants, who wonderful stories of Protestants, but over and over again it was the Catholic saints that I read. I just happened to have some books on, on saints um, that, you know, my mom had given me one, and, and I started reading them, and I just, their relationship with God was something that I wanted. I had never heard it expressed quite that way, their their intense love for God and how that, that, um that went into social action, into sharing Christ, even though as Catholics you don't talk about you know, evangelism as much. They were sharing the love of Christ. John Wesley had the same experience. It was his reading of Catholic saints, this is what I find fascinating, that gave him his idea for what he saw as holiness and sanctification.
1: So it's interesting because I know many of the stories of the Catholic saints, the, the, the mystics, people who had very powerful experiences a lot of those speri- experiences as you know center around the eucharist and, oh yes and yes, that's and, and you as a as mm-hmm. a protestant uh, do not view the eucharist in the same way at all how how do you mesh things together how do you stay where you are and and mm-hmm. how is it that what kept you from converting to catholicism in the spiritual journey
2: well you know john wesley said that that he almost uh, was destroyed and his mind his faith was almost destroyed by the catholic mystics but one of the reasons for that was because he wanted to go and live a cloistered life as a result of of reading the mystics which you know the ones that i read they were very socially active and um and so you know i think i read selectively i you know that's my that's my Easy answer to that one. The 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 mystics I read. I wasn't reading a lot about about the Eucharist. Uh, When Teresa of Avila is one of them that I've loved reading about her life. And and oh, and there and one of the whole one of the series of books I read was about, it was 40 days in the lives of several saints and mystics, and it was edited by a Protestant, David Hazard. It's called Rekindling the Inner Fire. And each book uh, had these, these 40 excerpts from a saint, and he did not, being a Protestant, he did not focus on the Eucharist. And so what happened to me in a lot of my reading, uh, some of these, like with Richard Foster, he edits uh, the saints. That's what, what John Wesley did. So I le- I read some Protestant editions, you know, where they had edited Catholic Saints. I also read a lot of Catholic Saints myself, and I, you know, I think I just uh, <laughs> yeah, went over those verses on the Eucharist, and I looked at it in my own way as how I see communion and how I see, you know, the body and blood of Christ uh, represented in communion. But um, again, back to Wesley, and I got, I got a kick out of this when I first heard it. He said, I want you to read the Catholic Saints and Mystics but only what I write about them. <laughs> I've written an edited version, and I love that. And I, I you know, that in a sense, that, well, that's really what Tony and I have done in this book. It's, it's not supposed to be a book about Catholic saints and mystics. It's supposed to be, although, you know, that is how it comes across for some people. But for me, it is, this is what, these are the people whose relationship with Christ transformed my life, cha- really changed my life.
1: Talk a bit about your um, your journey through spiritual direction training, which I know you did take at a Catholic institution, but I also know that spiritual direction uh, classes, the spiritual direction movement, is very ecumenical. But, but very. Uh, tell us how you got into that and what you got out of it.
2: I got into it because another uh, my, a colleague of mine uh, did the program. He's a staunch Free Methodist, found out about the program, and and the people who... And so that's how I got into it with a friend of mine. We did it at the same time. She's another free Methodist from birth. Uh, and, and so we both took these classes, and they were so welcoming uh, there were probably in the class of twenty-five. There were five of us who were not Catholic, and it focused on on the spirituality of Saint Ignatius. And so they didn't talk so much about Catholic doctrine as much as it was a it, it was called a spiritual direction program in Ignatian spirituality. And so we learned about Ignatius's prayer practices that that drew him into a transforming relationship with Christ, and then from there. I just caught on to some practices of prayer that I had never known about. They were new to me. They were not new at all. They were hundreds of years old, steeped in, in church tradition. And the, one of them that we talk about in the book, the Prayer of examine, that St. Ignatius taught um, his followers that it, if you are going to abandon one prayer during the day, never, ever forsake the Prayer of examine. And the Jesuits are still taught that those were the followers of Ignatian spirituality. They're still taught that today. Never forsake the prayer of exam. And so these prayer practices, I started doing these in the program, and they really, I, I saw them as, as transforming and freeing. And so, so the program was not so much to me Catholic as it was about Ignatius' own journey into intimacy with Christ that led him out into the world.
1: Uh, Mary, we're uh, down to the wire right now. Uh, okay. So, but before we leave, I, I want to ask you, besides uh, getting the book itself, are there any websites that uh, you can recommend to people who would enjoy this book?
2: Uh, you mean websites about the book?
1: Websites about the book, yeah, or, or basically on, on evangelical, mystical Christianity. Uh,
2: so far, there, there aren't too many. We In October, I'm going to be doing a blog on the Barclay Press with Barclay Press, Online and so people can read the book before October, uh, and then they will send me any questions, and I will I will be interacting with people online for the for the book in October through Barkley Press.
1: Okay, wonderful. Our guest today has been Mary Albert Darling. She's the co-author of The God of Intimacy and Action: Reconnecting Ancient Spiritual Practices, Evangelism, and Justice. We're going to continue our conversation with Mary next week. So please join us right here on WGVU. This is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella.
0: Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening, and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads. An interfaith dialogue.
1: Hello, I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome. To another edition of Common Threads. Acclaimed minister Tony Campolo, known for his impassioned preaching and activism, may not seem like a natural spokesperson for the contemplative life, but it's the quieter spiritual disciplines that fuel his fervor for evangelism and justice, he says. In The God of Intimacy and Action, Reconnecting Ancient Spiritual Practices, Evangelism, and Justice, Campolo joins spiritual director and teacher Mary Albert Darling to show how contemplative practices lead to a profound connection with God and in turn galvanizes a commitment to living the gospel. Campolo and Darling advocate holistic Christianity, weaving together mystical spirituality, evangelism, and a broad sense of justice. Intimacy with God nurtured by intentional spiritual practice instills a passionate commitment to bring salvation to the lost and to work for justice for the poor and oppressed. That's the message of this book and the message of our co-author of this book who's here with us today mary albert darling once again the god of intimacy and action reconnecting ancient spiritual practices evangelism and justice mary albert darling is a graduate and now a teacher at spring arbor university right here in michigan and she is here with us today as she was this time last week mary welcome back to common threads oh, it's
2: nice to be with you again
1: when we when we uh left off last week Uh, as i recall we were talking about your experiences in in spiritual direction class but Mm -hmm. but one thing we didn't really define is what is spiritual direction what 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 is a spiritual director um a a lot of people would just say well uh, my pastor is my spiritual director i guess because they may have never heard of 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 this movement talk talk about that for a bit
2: right and a a pastor can definitely be uh, a spiritual director and let me Throw this out, um, but but just because someone is a pastor doesn't mean they would necessarily be a good spiritual director with with how we're defining it. Although I would hope most would be, if not all. Um, a spiritual director, in a broad sense, is like a spiritual mentor. It is someone who who helps you to experience uh, God more and more in in everyday life. That that God is not compartmentalized to Sunday, but that that believing in God makes a difference. In all of your life. So what a spiritual director does, and, and again, I'm talking out of my training, my tradition. Uh, there are lots of different uh, definitions of a, of, of a spiritual director, and I am talking specifically about Christian uh, spiritual direction here, but it is someone who comes alongside, someone who, who maybe has maybe not been a Christian longer, but usually that's the case. Usually it's somebody who is older, um, but but it is somebody who has been trained in in helping you to discern God speaking in your life, discern the Holy Spirit, discern what Ignatius calls we talked a little bit about St. Ignatius last week. That was my, my training was in Ignatian spirituality, but what he calls the movements of the spirit, how do I know when it's the Holy Spirit and how do I know when it's when it's something else not of the spirit? And so one of the main things that a spiritual director does is is listen and a spiritual director also helps someone to broaden their prayer life with god to the point you know ideally where you would learn to do what the apostle paul called pray without ceasing
1: And obviously then you have a spiritual director
2: yes i do i do um, and actually my spiritual director i had talked um, before about the colleague who went into the program and and he has been my spiritual director. And, and, and spiritual, with spiritual directors, uh, this is something that's different with what we often think of as counseling and mentoring. Uh, spiritual directors, you can meet with them anywhere from one once a week to once every six weeks. Uh, traditionally, it's been about every four to six weeks. It's not as often as some people think.
1: And, and from my understanding of, uh, of the movement and the program, uh, there's a lot of cross-fertilization. That is to say, your spiritual director is Methodist. You are Methodist. Uh, right? you, I think yeah. you said last week this gentleman was right. a Methodist, but your spiritual director could easily be a Catholic, or you could be a spiritual director to a Catholic, or to a Baptist, or to uh, you know, an Episcopalian, right?
2: Right, right. In the book, we, ta- I, we I do take a lot of time, well, several pages, to, to talk about how to pick a spiritual director, uh, because you would want, as far as you know the basic tenets of your faith, you would want hopefully you know we probably would want that to be to be consistent um but other than that, we just give some other guidelines that we think are good because you know we really believe that that the intimate relationship that we're talking about, this intimate mystical relationship with Jesus really does draw us to want to evangelize and work for justice, and so if you're a spiritual director. Isn't on that same page? We would advise that you you keep looking, uh, because we think that that's the necessary outcome. What Jesus was talking about, if you're His, Jesus said in John fourteen, if you're my friend, you do what I command. And and Jesus commands that we love one another, and that we do that in in word and in action. And so, if a spiritual director keeps you kind of inwardly focused, then we would we would caution you to go to somebody else.
1: Right. So it's a more uh, more of a matter of personal philosophy personal philosophy as opposed to denominational allegiance. Yes,
2: yes.
1: Mm-hmm. And of course throughout the book you you talk about intimacy, intimacy with God, intimacy with Christ. And you bring up the Hebrew uh the term yada to make known. Mhm. Tell us about this a bit.
2: Yes, in um, well, the the Latin root for intimacy does mean to make known. It's the, that is that Hebrew word. It means to know intimately. And oftentimes, when we, I believe that when we see the word know in the Bible, we start to we think of it more as a head knowledge. Okay, I know the scripture. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to follow this and do this. Which yes, is is important, but it's not enough. And one of my favorite uh, verses for this is John five thirty nine. 40 Jesus says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life and it is they that testify on my behalf yet you refuse to come to me to have life and so the knowing is an intimate knowing when 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 Paul says I want to know Christ in Philippians he says I want to know Christ that doesn't mean he didn't mean a head knowledge he meant a heart a heart knowledge and he was talking about you know becoming like christ in all ways sharing in the sufferings of christ and you can't do that with just a, a head knowledge or you can't do it for very long
1: and also when in the bible when they say uh, to know or he knew her that also had uh, sexual connotation as well
2: correct right and and we're talking about that that deep that deep intimacy that yes it does have sexual uh, connotations we're not talking about that personally in the book but that kind of of deep deep knowing uh, is, is part of that root word,
1: yes. And I'm sorry, when I read this, I couldn't help. Uh, Do you ever see that Seinfeld episode about yada, yada, yada? I did, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just jumped out it's at very me.
2: very spiritual, very spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm sure as soon as you know, if they replayed that, people would want to go out and buy our book, now that it's out. <laughs> Well,
1: we won't spend a whole lot of time on that, but I just had to throw it out there. When I saw it in the book, I go, oh, this is where this comes from.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: Mary, you don't know anything about this, uh, or much about this show, but, but let me tell you this. In all of the time I've been doing this, I never challenge core beliefs of, of, of a person or, or of their tradition. You know, I would never have a Muslim on and say, so why in the world would you believe that this angel came to Muhammad and revealed the uh-huh. Quran, right? Or <laughs> right. say to a, a, a Buddhist, why in the world would you ever want to reincarnate? So I've never challenged uh, uh, any Christian on the exclusivist claims of Christianity, of, of being the true, the one and only true path to to God. But I'm going to break that rule for just a half a second here, because you opened okay. the door. You opened okay. the door. I have, through over the years, interviewed a number of people who would call themselves mystics, and they've come from a, a variety of traditions, not only on this show, but also in the interfaith dialogue movement, just connecting with a lot of different people. So I've I've uh, connected with people who are Jews practicing Kabbalah, um, sure. uh, Muslims who are Sufis, uh, Christian mystics who are just liberal Christians who who veer outside of uh, biblical Christianity and, uh, and Hindu yogis. And one thing that they seem to all have in common is that the deeper they get into the mystery, the intimacy, the more the lines tend to blur so that uh-huh. the Sufi Muslim isn't going to uh, tell the Hindu yogi that he needs to become a Muslim or the Jewish Kabbalist isn't going to tell the Christian mystic that, oh, you know, he'd, he'd give up reading the New Testament and read the Zohar.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in, in your spiritual journey up to this point, number one, did you ever were you ever tempted to see the lines blur at all for you?
2: I was only tempted to see the lines blur, blur when, when I would read something from someone else that I thought was consistent with what I knew of Jesus from, from my experience from the Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, but John, uh, it's, it's, it's the way that people describe uh, John Wesley's theology, that, that we have to look at Scripture, we have to look at church tradition we have to look at experience, and we have to look at reason. And I love that. And when what I read was consistent with those kinds of things, like in in Buddhism, it's very popular to talk about noticing. Well, that's not very far from Brother Lawrence's practicing the presence of God. But the main difference, and this is where I've not been tempted, I've never been tempted to lose Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And and. That is something, you know, one of the saints that has meant the most to me and where I got on to, to reading about saints uh, was, was Teresa of Avila. And they talked about her in my spiritual direction program, too. And one of the things that the priest, who was the main teacher in the program, said that he really appreciated about her was that she never lost the centrality of Christ. And the saints that I read, back to John Wesley, you know, saying this is who you editing the saints, the saints that I read never lost the centrality of Christ, and I would caution anyone, you know, as a Christian, I would caution anyone who, you know, one of the criticisms of saints and mystics is that they go straight to God, and, it's, and one of the main differences, and Tony and I even talk about this in the book, is that some mystics, you know, are talking about becoming part of God. We're talking about God in us, and there's a, there's a big difference to me theologically there, that we are still who we are, but it is—it is God is at work in us, transforming who we are into His His image and likeness. So we like to use the word unity rather than than union, and it's a word Jesus used a lot. Unity. So no, for me it has not been a temptation, but I would I would caution anyone, you know, to just be careful of, of who they read.
1: So, have you ever had any experience with with people of other faiths? Who were mystics, Sufis, yogis, uh, Kabbalists for uh, Jews, any anyone that falls into that uh, those categories?
2: Um, not not a what I would say, you know, a deep friendship with someone. People that I have met, I went to a, a conference last year that Tony actually had me go to. It was um, and it was was interfaith, and so we had a church service where there was all there were all kinds of different you know ways to. To worship God at that service, and that was a little out of my my comfort zone. Uh, But again, it wasn't a temptation because I think, especially my mystical experiences have been very, like I said, very Christ focused. Jesus has become my friend, and that who that's who has transformed my life. And it's kind of like it wasn't it Peter who said, "You know," Jesus said, "Are you going to leave me too?" And he said, "Where else would we go?" and that's how i feel i'm i'm not going to leave you jesus that where else would i go and i don't want to go anywhere else
1: right right but if you were to meet somebody who let's say let's oh. pick pick a, a sufi someone okay. who who had deep uh, uh a deep intimacy with god uh and also through that intimacy um was very much a social activist somebody who was compassionate etc um you would still say that there was something miss- missing, even though it may not be apparent in his life or her life mm-hmm. that something was missing.
2: Okay, you know, uh, sometimes instead of saying how I feel, I like to quote other people. Certainly,
1: by, by all means. <laughs> so
2: let me go to C.S. Lewis here. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love the last um, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, where they're all going, you know, further up and further into heaven, and and somebody comes through a door and. One of the the girls, I don't know if it's Susan or Lucy, says, "But Jesus, you know, but Aslan, they didn't call you Aslan." And he said, "No, they knew me by a different name." So I don't know if if other people know Jesus by a different name, but I think that's an interesting theology uh, to think about. And it is C.S. Lewis, so I think hopefully it's safe to say. Well, that that Uh, is. You know. Oh, go
1: ahead. I'm I'm saying that that uh, Vatican II. The documents of Vatican II would actually uh, flow well with that.
2: Mm-hmm. That's. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's
1: to some people that would mean nothing, of course, but to other people that would give, you know, cause for thought. So,
2: mm-hmm. and you know what I do when I do talk to people from other faiths is I try to, you know, it's a good communication pr- uh, communication um, principle is is that you know you try to establish a common ground, and I find conversations to be very easy with people if they know that you are are making connections with them that doesn't have to mean that you agree but you can you find common threads and i think that you can do that especially if we do believe that all truth is god's truth then there are some common threads and there are truths of god out there uh you know many truths of god that you can have conversations with with people from from different faiths for example if you go to the heart of a lot of religions there is a strong commitment to love and justice you know and 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 that's obviously incredibly incredibly biblical
1: right right and and many people in the interfaith movement they're not trying to to blur the lines really they're trying to 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 encourage this kind of cooperation so that justice may be served in society at large
2: right, uh, right. If and i do think i you know what i think we will find in uh, you know i'm not obviously the first person to say this but making connections with people and loving people and, and trying to accept people, even with different beliefs, will go a lot further for people being attracted to Christianity than, than, than some kind of hate talk. Even though we won't admit that it's hate talk, it often comes across
1: that way. It's been said. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and joining us today is Mary Albert. Darling, she is the co author of The God of Intimacy and Action Reconnecting Ancient Spiritual Practices, Evangelism, and Justice. You talk about the, the New Testament in the, uh, in the chapter Christian Mysticism and Working for Justice. And it says here that the, the Gospels were not written in classical Greek, but a, a term that's used here is rap Greek. <laughs> doesn't that mean Tony's that it ri- <laughs> doesn't mean that it necessarily <laughs> rhymes <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> didn't mean that jesus had a rhythm section accompanying him when he was on on the mount but but yeah, we
2: don't know that but <laughs> that's
1: true we don't know that that's true uh but tell us uh what what that means and what you think that uh, uh that has to do with uh spiritual practices
2: okay well, you know and, and what Tony was specifically referring to there and I do like that, that phrase the rap Greek uh, that the Bible uh, you know has to be read uh, through the eyes of the poor and oppressed and and that's because both of us believe and you know he writes this that it is primarily a story of, of of deliverance of oppressed of oppressed people and and so we you know we all tend to read the Bible through our own eyes and and we want to read selectively sometimes but He's saying if you look at the whole story of the Bible and the whole salvation story, you're going to see a story of, of freedom from oppression and people working for freedom from oppression, and the Bible needs to be read that way, you know. And it, for to go to for extremes here, uh, you know, we're not talking about a health and wealth gospel. We're talking about, you know, Paul saying, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ, and that's different from health and wealth. And so we're talking about, you know, if you... If you Want to live the whole salvation story, the whole gospel message? Then you need to be working to help relieve the oppression of people and of all of creation.
1: Let's uh, let's uh, go to the actual practices themselves that you find uh, so mm-hmm. enlivening and are uh, really the, at the core of the book. because uh, mm-hmm. there there's a lot of books written about um, mystics about mysticism. But uh, some of them will just tell you about but, about it in a very general way. You're very specific. If, if somebody reads this book and is very committed to these practices, you give them sort of a recipe.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that was very intentional because, um, you know, I, I've read a lot of books where I say, yeah, hey, that's really good, and then I put it away and I don't do anything with it. And it is the practicing. It's not, it wasn't the learning about these practices. It was the doing these practices that transform my life because you can think something sounds good but unless you try it and you see the transformation uh, you you won't know and so that was what was really important in my spiritual direction program is that they we not only learned about these we did retreats where we we were in these prayer practices and and it's not something that you just do one time and people might think it's ironic that i talk about different prayer practices, the importance of them, and the importance of a bunch of different spiritual disciplines in one of the chapters, and yet I only talk about three practices. And so I want to make it clear to people that I... It, I'm not saying that these are the only three you do. They're not the only three you do. It's just that, you know, I'm I'm a firm believer in intercessory prayer. I don't talk about intercessory prayer in the book except to make mention to it because most evangelicals, well, all evangelicals know about intercessory prayer. And so I'm talking about these specific prayer practices and methods for them that I really, I so desperately want people to try because, and not just try once, because they really have... They've made such a huge difference in my life and in the lives of so many people I know who are learning to practice these students of mine who have caught on to these, who are really interested in these prayer practices and that, who see a difference in their lives and in what they're interested in and what they want to be about.
1: So let's talk about a couple of these. We, we talked about Examine uh, last week, uh, mm-hmm. briefly, uh, uh, albeit, but um, let's talk about Centering Prayer and Lectio Divina. Uh, we can start with either one.
2: Okay, um, I'll start with, with Lectio Divina, because that one uh, is, is centered in, in reading the Scripture and in how you read the Scripture. But so many of us read the Scripture for study, and, and that is necessary, but it's not sufficient. We also need to learn to read reflectively, to have the Spirit speak through us uh, while we read. And we often don't do that. We will read as if we're reading a textbook and say, okay, this is what I need to do, and not recognize that the Spirit of God is alive in those words, and that they can make a difference in our lives. So Letio Divina is pretty simple. It's reading a passage of Scripture, not a very long one, and then, and then sitting in, in prayer and, and reflectively going over those words and, and having the Spirit speak to us. And there's a couple different ways that you can do it. You can do it the way I just described, where you kind of sit with. How I described it is you sit with the verse and you say, God, if there's something you want to say to me, I'm just going to sit reflectively, with these words as I read them slowly, another way that you can do it, and Ignatius talks about this, is that you enter into the Bible story and that you you become a part of that story. You know, John Orbert has a whole book on this himself called "If You Want to Walk." Um, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat, and that's what I'm talking about. I even I talk about an example of that in my own life in the book on um, where. You know, I did Letzio Divina on that, on those verses, and I was hanging onto the boat, and Jesus was saying to me, you know, you, you've got to let go, and I, I have a whole description of what happened there. And it wasn't that I was writing the script. This was happening to me uh, as I was doing this reflection. And drawing closer to Jesus, I, there's been nothing that has drawn me into more intimacy with Jesus and more friendship with Jesus than Letzio Divina. And then as it leads into... Uh, what I you know what we talk about is centering prayer or silent prayer,
1: and and let's go into that centering prayer. Okay,
2: yeah, that's another scary one for people because they think, okay, what are you doing here? Are you what are you opening up yourself to? And so we we have methods for all these prayers. I'm a Methodist. I like method, and um, so we have steps for all these prayers. And for the centering prayer, our very first step is a prayer of protection. We give a couple examples. Of prayers of protection to say you know we are not opening ourselves up to other spirits we are opening ourselves up to the Spirit of God and we are sitting in silence before God and we for all of these prayers we have Bible verses um, that that these prayers have been have have come from and so we have some of those verses about being still before God um, in this chapter but centering prayer is simple it's it's simple, but it's hard. It's sitting before God in silence. But uh, as Henry Nouwen said, it's like a he said when he sits in silence. Sometimes he feels like there are a bunch of monkeys jumping around. His brain is monkeys jumping around in a banana tree, and so it's about continuing to show up, continuing to be silent before God, and having those times expand, uh, ideally into about twenty minutes a day. Historically, uh, that has been a really great amount of time for people to center and to have god's spirit speak deep to our spirits that's how i describe it we're creating space for god to meet us and us to meet god
1: do you feel comfortable calling that meditation or do you try to stay away from that term
2: i i stay away from the term meditation for for two reasons one is because people are scared of that word they think it's new age the other reason is is though it's It's a definition. I use the word meditation as David uses it in the Psalms. I meditate on your word day and night. There's lots of... um, The word meditation is used lots in the Psalms. And so we actually use meditation when we're talking about Letzio Divina. Right. As as reflecting. And so, yeah. Contemplation.
1: Contemplation. That's right. Uh, From what I recall, in the Catholic tradition, what a Buddhist or a Hindu would call meditation a Catholic would call contemplation.
2: Exactly, exactly. So contemplation, we've, we've mentioned that real briefly, but we like to use the word centering or silence. And actually, centering prayer is a precursor to deeper meditation or what um, has been called historically in the Church deep resting in God. Um, but we define these terms, you know, very carefully because we don't want people to misunderstand Uh, what we're saying here. We know that they're left up to a lot of different interpretations. So, yeah, we look at contemplation as a deeper kind of of centering or silence.
1: Well, I would certainly recommend anyone within the evangelical community, if they uh, have any interest in in these practices at all, this is a perfect place to start. Uh, The book is The God of Intimacy and Action, Reconnecting Ancient Spiritual Practices, Evangelism and Justice, Mary, we're down to the wire. We we have to end today's program, but I want to thank you for uh, both today and uh, your appearance with us last week. It's uh, It's been a very pleasant, uh, pleasant couple of half hours. Uh, thank
2: you. It's been wonderful to be with you.
1: Thank you. I'm Fred Stella. This is Common Threads here on WGVU. Please join us again next week.
0: Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.